Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. Happiness is a trap, and most people waste their entire lives chasing it. As today's guest says, happiness is a direction, not a destination. And the real destination you should be chasing is far more interesting and potent than mere happiness. So join me today with Arthur Brooks as we explore the joys of an honorable life lived in pursuit of pleasure, power, and success instead. Why is it a trap to think that you can be happy? Because happiness is not a destination. Happiness is a direction. Happiness is the idea that you can be blissful and happy all the time. Is It's not just unrealistic. It's unhealthy. It would be terrible if you were happy all the time. You'd be eaten by a tiger immediately. You would be, uh, you'd be, you'd have no uh, um, negative feelings, which keep you alive. I mean, the idea of, you know, the limbic system of your brain that's producing sadness and anger and disgust and, and fear. These are the, the emotions that have kept you alive. I mean, your Pleistocene ancestors would have been eaten by an animal immediately. You'd be run over by a car. You need these things that actually make you at least temporarily unhappy, or you can't put one foot in front of the other. Therefore, happiness is the wrong goal. The right goal is happier. So that's really what we're trying to do. And to get happier is a process all throughout your life. And to be on the path toward what Oprah Winfrey calls happierness you you actually need a system that makes it possible and so that you can pursue it and you need to pursue it. The reason people need to watch Impact Theory, by the way, is nice. because this is a pursuit of happiness show. This is all about pursuit. This is all about achievement. It's about trying. It's about making your life better. It's about it's about progress. This is one of the most important points of human flourishing. This is about progress. You know, you people often ask, why is it so relatively easy to lose weight but impossible to keep it off mm. it's because when the scale goes down each day it gives you this incredible reward but when you hit your goal the reward is never eating anything you like ever again for the rest of your life everything in life is progress and that's why the pursuit matters so that you can actually be on the trail toward happierness and that's the right goal for all of us it's really interesting i like that a lot I think a lot about the traps. So right. when I think about what impact theory is and what I'm trying to make it, it started out pretty simplistic. So we're in phase three of impact mm -hmm. theory at this point. 
because it it's really me trying to figure out okay how do you get out of the spiritual entertainment and into the real thing that people need to actually do and understand in order to make progress in order to be happier in order to be more fulfilled is how i think mm -hmm. about it um but the way that people get trapped is very counterintuitive to me and you're the only person that i've ever heard bring it up I don't know if you consider it the, the central thesis, but you've talked about how people get stuck in their perceptions. Yeah. And that to me is very interesting. And there's really, I think, two ways that people get stuck by their perceptions. One is they confuse them with objective reality. Mm. So they just think, oh, the thing I believe is true. Right. And so if you don't believe it, you just don't see the truth. And then the other way that people get trapped by perception is they identify themselves with it. And so they love that they are on the left or the right. right. And so you end up with this vicious cycle of, I'm proud that I have recognized the truth and I feel good about myself for noticing how wrong you are. Yeah. And so we end up in a pretty gnarly situation where they're not actually happy. That's right. the freaky thing. So how do people begin to unwind that? Well, so there's a lot, there's a lot in what, I mean, I agree with everything that you said, but there's so much in mm -hmm. what you said too, that, that, that helps us understand the, the bad situation or the conundrum that our country is in, that the world is in. And it has everything to do with our inability to, to, to stop seeing ourselves in terms of the things that we think. This is a classic kind of attachment. So Buddhists talk about this a lot. So Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese Buddhist monk, who, you know, one of the, one of the most important um, Buddhist teachers of the last 50 years died just a couple of years ago. And he used to talk about the, the worst kind of attachments that we have in modern life is the attachment to our views, mm. the attachments to what we think. That's just as bad as being attached to your watch or your car or your television to say, you know, like, I love my, I love my car. I mean, what's wrong with you? I love your car. It's a thing. You shouldn't, you, you, you only use things and you only love people. I mean, that's an iron law of happiness. But the thing is all, that, that we, we do a version of this ideologically where we say that we, we, we're so identified with the things that we think that it becomes an attachment, that it becomes almost a love attachment in our lives. Now, that's really alienating. That's incredibly alienating because you are not your views and I am not mine. And, and that's incredibly important for us to be able to learn for this pursuit of happiness, for progress in and of itself, is to not be the things that we think and to recognize that we think many things that are wrong. We just don't know which they are. The reason people watch this show and listen to this show is because they want to learn more so they can update their views, which is an acknowledgement that their views weren't perfect to begin with, that their knowledge wasn't perfect to begin with. Now, when you're being taught by a... a, a you know, baby boomer culture warriors that are trying to conscript child soldiers into their culture war, they will say, if you don't think these things, something is morally defective about you and you will have the perfect truth. You will have the, the secret Gnostic truths if you do believe these things. And at that point, our beliefs, including political beliefs, have just become a religion. Mm. They've just become no, a cult. And, and that's really what we see. And so people are inducted into these competing cults all the time. And, you know, like I, I have a traditional religion and I identify with my religion, but I don't know if I'm right. Even on that, I don't know the things that I, that are, that are right. And that's been incredibly freeing for me. And that's ultimately what we all have to acknowledge. I think these things, but I'm willing to be corrected if I get better information, and the only way I'm going to do that is to go to people who disagree with me, people who think differently than me, people who threaten my preconceived notions, and, and to take it in and say, you disagree with me, Tom, come sit next to me. Yeah. I got to hear it. 
Why is that freeing? Why is it freeing to acknowledge that you almost certainly are wrong mm -hmm. and to invite people to challenge those ideas? For most people, that that's like arresting. Yeah, well, that's a hard thing to do because that actually goes against, that that, that, that contravenes evolution. Evolution is tells us that we need to believe particular things and to defend them. And the ego threats are actually dangerous to us because if, you know, if we're, if we show ourselves to be wrong to others, then that makes us look incompetent. Then we're less likely to survive. We're less likely to thrive in a community. We're less likely to rise in a hierarchy. We're less likely to find mates. Mm -hmm. And so the result is that you defend, 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 but we don't have to do that. That's hugely maladapted in modern life, particularly with modern technology. I mean, think of the technology that, that we're using right now to record this show and that people are using to watch us right now. That's an updating learning technology. And if you're stuck in the static, the stasis of, of uh, here's this body of information that I have and it must all be right, you've, you've basically said that you can't grow and learn. So you have to relax that evolutionary imperative. You have to fight back against what mother nature is putting into you. That's in, you know, this is the way that philosophers will always talk about sort of the animal path and the divine path. The animal path is going according to your evolutionary imperatives. These are the things that I, it's like, if it feels good, do it. It's the best way to ruin your life. <laughs> the divine path is to stand up to the things that feel unnatural. You know, we do this all the time. I mean, you and I work out every day. Right. And, and that's a, it's the, the na nature's path is sit on the couch, right? Nature's path is eat that sweet thing. Right. And, and the divine path is to do things that are hard, that don't feel natural because you know, you're, you're, you, you've been given a prefrontal cortex where you can make conscious decisions that are better than what, what your feelings tell you that they should be. So Mother Nature says, defend your opinions at all costs, because if you don't, it's an ego threat and it could have, you know, could have catastrophic consequences for your position in the hierarchy. But you know that if you don't defend your positions, if you admit to the possibility that you're not right, that you learn and you update. And when people say things that you think are crazy, you say, tell me more, that you're actually going to get better. And that's a conscious decision. Mm, yeah. So one, the fact that it's a conscious decision, I think is really important for people. It's something you talk about in the book that uh, when people have collision of values, mm. they can really run into a problem. One of the things, and going back to the question I was asking, one of the things that I think really causes problems for people is they have a value system. They've never articulated it to themselves. Right. They've never documented it, written it down. So they know these are my actual values. And then they don't realize that those are choices. Again, they're mistaking them for this is how the world ought to be. Um, and when they collide with other people, they just assume you don't recognize the way the world ought to be. You are bad. You're right. a moron, whatever. And now you get these conflicts. And you said in the book that uh, families break up because you didn't say collision of values, but that's how I read it to mean and people expect it to be something else. I forget what you said people expect it to be. Well, but... they think it's because of a behavioral discrepancy. It's usually a values discrepancy mm. is the way that it works out. So the way that families tend to break apart, and, and again, no joke, one in six Americans is not talking to a family member today because of politics, wow. which is craziness for happiness. It's cra There's one reason of a schism with family, and that's abuse. And political differences- The one reason that there should be- Yeah, that's the only legitimate reason to have a schism Got in your it. family is because of abuse. And and 
differences of political opinion are not abuse. Right. At least they weren't. They didn't used to be abuse. But if you're being convinced by, you know, by, by leaders who are trying to, to bring you into their culture war, trying to make you a soldier in their culture war, they'll say if somebody disagrees with your view on, you know, Supreme Court decisions or something that they're somehow uh, erasing your value as a human being. I mean, that's this wild leaps of logic. And, and we hear about this on college campuses where I spend a lot of my time, obviously, that we're telling people that if people disagree with you, that they're erasing you, mm. that they, 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 they disagree with your existence or something. It's just this crazy existential language that, that we're using that's way out of proportion to everything. So, the only reason to have these schisms is 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 actual abuse. And again, people disagree with what abuse is, but it's not that. Okay. Right. Now, what do we find with when when people tend to st- really have a bad problem in their family? People think that, you know, for example, you know, I, I deal with a lot of students and they're they're building their lives and figuring out how they're going to live their own lives. And it turns out that they disagree with their parents on a lot. They come home from college saying different things, for example. They, you know, they're living in a particular different way, things that their parents might really disagree with. It turns out that how you live your life doesn't matter. It almost never matters and almost never leads to schism. What you say about somebody else's values is what really matters. So if you want to have a really big, so all the, you know, all the people in college who are watching us, and you have, I know you have a huge audience in their, in their late teens and twenties who are impact theory fans, which is great. If you want to have a, live your life, but have a relationship with your parents, live your life, but don't tell your parents that their values are stupid. Mm. That turns out to be a direct on attack. And that leads to bigger problems. One thing that's become really popular though, is um, tell your dad or your uncle who says the racist thing at Thanksgiving, what you think, should they not do that? No, it's perfectly fine to do that, but don't freak out. Don't freak out. You say, I, you know, I see it different. Yeah. Hey, uncle Mark. You know, I see it differently. And, 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 and as you do say to yourself before you begin, I love uncle Mark and I'm going to use my values right now as a gift and not as a weapon. Anytime you use your values as a weapon, you've denigrated the moral content. You've eviscerated the effectiveness of your approach. But if you use your values as a gift, it might not always be taken in a charitable way, but you're using them for the right reason. And you've got the odds on chance of actually having a good impact. This is really interesting. Um, I had Sam Harris on the show who I have a great deal of respect for. He has become very unpopular in certain circles for the way that he is approaching the problem of free speech. I want to be abundantly clear that my value system tells me that free speech is worth dying for. And so it isn't the thing that I would expect anybody to reach for and say, okay, we're going to clamp down on that. Now, Sam sees it differently. And as I try to tease out when a smart person, when I I learned one immutable truth, when two smart people who are sincere think each other are stupid, then odds are that they have different base assumptions. Yeah. And when I look at Sam and I say, okay, Sam's base assumption is that if something is an existential threat, then it's worth stripping away any right to make sure that we don't succumb to said existential threat. And then I was like, Okay, because I don't know that I would disagree with that. If I knew there was an asteroid hurtling towards Earth and it was life or death and we were all going to have to get on the same page and do X, Y, Z thing. If I really knew that it was do X, survive, do Y, everyone dies, then I would for sure say do X. Right. It makes sense. But I don't think people know how to agree 
on what is the right course of action. Nor on, do you have perfect when, knowledge. Right. So no perfect knowledge. You don't know if it's actually an existential threat. Right. And so I'll, I'll take it out of that realm for a second. That's the problem, right? People don't right. have perfect knowledge. They don't know, but, and now I'll take it in the realm that I do understand very well. When you're building a business, you must give your team certainty. Right. It's what I call intoxicating them with certainty. It's right. the only way to get them to follow you. Right. Now, the catch is, as a leader, you have to balance. You know that your team has a need for certainty. It's the only way to get them moving in the same direction. Right. But you have to balance that with what we were talking about before, what I call the physics of progress. Mm -hmm. That the only way to make progress is to constantly hunger for how am I wrong. So right. you have to, okay, I was wrong here. I need to update my thinking. I need to update my approach. If you don't do that, you're screwed. But now there's tension between right. I need to present to my team, hey, this is the way, but I also need to beg my team to tell me at all times how I'm wrong, right? Because they're the ones that are, that are going to recognize the flaw in your thinking that are going to show you a better way. Right. So it's this absolutely fascinating mm -hmm. tension. Now, when this plays out in the bigger world with the speed of information that we have today, thanks to the internet and social media, you get this. Right. which I would say has a level of pathology in it that scares the life out of me. Right. So how do we manage that tension of it's imperfect knowledge, but I must give certainty in order to get a country or a globe moving in the right direction. And an easy way to give people certainty is to say, we're all going to die. Right. Right. Which is the thing that people reach for. Right. But if you don't give people certainty, meh, everybody runs in weird directions. Well, the the answer, well, so, so, so the, the Buddhist would say the answer to that question is intention without attachment. Okay. So certainty is this is the direction that we're going. This is the goal. This is the target as far as I can see it. But I'm not attached to that because this is this is subject to updating. So you'll find, for example, you look at the, the ancient navigational course of Columbus or, you know, the explorers, you know, that had very imperfect tools. They had a concept of the direction that they were going and they had a particular goal and they were going toward that goal with complete certainty. It was, you know, Columbus was an entrepreneur and he was he was taking his team, the Nina Pinton Santa Maria toward this particular goal. And it turned out to be completely wrong. Mm. But the point is that the certainty was the intention, the fact that they got something else that was arguably better, was the lack of attachment to the object of the intention. And this is what we're trying to do in our companies, in our families, and, and indeed in the enterprise, the ultimate enterprise that we need to impact, which is our lives. I mean, it's like you're, you're Tom Inc. That's the real enterprise of you. I mean, it just manifested itself in all sorts of these other cool businesses and the things that are really successful. But all those were just expressions of the of the real enterprise. And each of us is an entrepreneur in the startup of our lives. That's what really matters. And what we need is to always have a clear intention, but not attachment mm -hmm. to the object of that intention, because that makes you dogmatic. And the problem that we have right now is we have fuzzy intention and strong attachment. We have exactly the opposite of what we need in our politics today and the way that people talk to each other, the way that people debate. And so if I have a strong intention of the things that I believe, even politically, but a lack of strong attachment, I can have a conversation. And Sam Harris and I had a similar conversation, except it was about religion. And, you know, I'm, I'm a traditionally religious person and he's an atheist. And, and the way that we went out, we, before we, we, you know, hit record on his show, we said, we're going to talk about this to learn. We're not going to talk about this to argue. We're going to talk about this to learn. Right. And so when he would say something I thought was like, whoa, I'd be like, 
dude, tell me more. Right. And he would say, explain this to me because this sounds crazy to me. So truly explain this to me. So what is that? That was, we both had this intention, but we didn't have the attachment. And so we were willing to update. And in so doing, we got better. Now, when you're running a team, if you've got a company and I've been a CEO, so I've had, I've, I've made all these mistakes over the years. If they see that you have this very clear intention, we're running this direction. This is what we think. This is my best judgment. But my attachment to these things is not is not absolute. You can throw me off this if you actually bring the best possible information to me. And you can tell me that, that the way I'm thinking about it is not quite right. Then I'm going to change the intention. But in the meantime, this is the direction that we're all going. That turns out to be the way to square the circle. This turns out to be the way to, to solve this problem personally, in families, in communities, and in companies is intention with that attachment. All right, that's amazing. But how do you do that? How do you, I, I have a feeling that a big part of the problem is people have um, accidentally constructed their identity around that which they think they are. So I am, in fact, oh God, if I can remember, this is maybe a paraphrase, but it's really damn close to something you said. We need less activists and more volunteers. And when You're somebody- huh? You read my column. <laughs> I, I have tried to immerse myself in your world, one, for the this, and two, you are incredibly helpful for navigating people trying to do extraordinary things in their life in a way that makes their life better and not yeah. worse. So the the strivers- curse. I forget the exact words you use. It's driver's curse. But, oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah you're, uh, you're good. So it, if people identify as an activist yeah. or a volunteer, that, that simple, like yeah. even you just giving me the language, I was yeah. like, oh, whoa, yeah. I get what you're trying to say. Yeah. Helping others versus like my identity is this thing right. and, and I'm going to fight to the death for this. Right. Um, but how do you begin to extricate your identity from the things that you believe so that you can have non-attachment. To begin with, we have to ask, who am I? And, Meaning and you're going to define that or you're going to discover we, we that? Need, we, well, you ultimately discover that, but you have to have an understanding of that that's, that's not brittle and that's not based on the outside world. So just, there's a philosophical concept that William James talked about, but the Eastern philosophers talk about this a lot too, which is what William James called the I-self versus the me-self. The I-self is, is, say you're looking in a mirror, and when you look in the mirror, there's actually, there's two of you. There's the one who's looking and the one who's being looked at. Mm -hmm. The one who's looking is the I-self, the observer of the world. The one who's being looked at is the me-self, which is the observed. You're going through life as I-self and me-self. You need me-self to know who you are and how you, where you stand in society and where, you know, where you are on the team and where you are in the hierarchy and, you know, where you are in traffic for that matter. But you need the I-self so that you can learn and you can exist. We are all too heavy on the me-self, on the observed, and none of us, almost none of us is heavy enough on the observer part. So one of the th exercises I'll give my students at you know, Harvard Business School, they take this happiness class, which is about the, you know, it's called leadership and happiness, the serious science of, of the business of you. And, and I'll say, we're going to go through an hour. You're going to take an hour where you're not going to be observed. You're simply going to observe. And now this means a lot. This means, for example, you say like, you don't say, yeah, this coffee is bitter. You say, hmm, this coffee has a bitter flavor. Nothing more than observation. There's no mirrors. There's no no notifications on social media. There's no judgments. There's just observation of the world to get better at that. And this is incredibly important. If we want to learn and we want to update, 
this also gets us away from this whole concept of my identity in my ideology. Because what that fundamentally is, is just me, 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 me. It's like, who am I? I am the things that I think. If somebody disagrees with me, then they're attacking me. That's insanity. That's pure vanity. That is just looking in a mirror all day long saying, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the most beautiful of them all? It's me and my political beliefs. That's craziness. There's no, there's no way to live. And by the way, that's the fastest way to become a truly unhappy person. Why? The reason is because you need the grandeur of the world to actually give you what you need, the experience of day-to-day life. And living in the, 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 the image of yourself is just boring. It's just tedious. It, you know, thinking about me and what they think of me and whether or not they agree with me and whether or not these things are going to satisfy me, 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 me. It's like watching the same episode of the same season of Better Call Saul every single day for the rest of your life. It was okay the first time. It was not that great the second time. And it's awful every time after that. And being forced to do that, that's identity politics. That's the world of identity. That's the world of mirrors. That's the world of social media um, notifications. That's the world of the me self is what it comes down to. So if we really want to be happy, get into the I self, the learning space, the observation, the awe of the outside world, and your life will change. It'll just change. And it's fast. So in the book, you say that uh, basically exactly what you just said, that happiness isn't the feeling, but the feeling is evidence Mm -hmm. of the happiness. Right. So then what is the happiness? What is the meat and potatoes? Yeah. That's a good analogy because it's the, either the courses or really the macronutrients in the, the thing that is happiness is, has three parts to it. And we know this from, from, you know, measuring people who have high levels of well-being versus those who don't high well-being is associated with high levels of enjoyment, satisfaction, and meaning. In life, those are the three things that we need to actually pursue. The pursuit of happiness is the pursuit of enjoyment, the pursuit of satisfaction, and the pursuit of meaning. And there are three different goals with three different sciences and three different strategies to it. When somebody only pursues one, they're not going to be happy. You need a balance and abundance across this macronutrient profile for happiness if you're going to get it. I meet people all the time who have great enjoyment in life, but very little meaning and they're not happy. I know people, hardworking entrepreneurs who have tremendous meaning and no quality of life, no enjoyment. They're not happy. And so I have to coach people in different ways about this. Satisfaction is the hardest of them because going to ask because you can't keep it, you know, and so they each have Why a science. Why can't you keep satisfaction? Because the brain is something has a tendency to be homeostatic. Homeostasis mm-hmm. is the tendency of the brain to always take you emotionally back to equilibrium. So you'll be ready for the next set of circumstances. If you want a fighting chance against the competition, you need to be using the best technology and platforms in the world like Shopify. For whatever and wherever you want to sell, from launching to going international, Shopify is the global commerce platform that will help you grow at every stage of your business. Shopify is your all-in-one platform to quickly and efficiently take your business to the next level. Now, I love everything about Shopify because it makes it so easy for you to start run and grow your business. It didn't used to be this easy. I'm telling you back in the day, it was a lot harder. I'm so jealous. Shopify powers more than 10% of all US e-commerce because businesses that want to grow quickly and efficiently choose Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash impact, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash impact now to grow your business 
no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash impact. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're gonna have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes. So doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too? That's the beauty of Noom. They build a personal plan that factors in dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs so your plan works for you. Noom doesn't restrict or shame when you want to treat yourself. Their flexible program focuses on progress instead of perfection. You don't have to give up carbs or anything. And with their daily lessons, you can learn something new about your food choices every day. After just a few days of using the app, I learned how to recognize cues for overeating and how to choose the right foods to feel full. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. Interesting. Can I push back on that? Yeah. So one, obviously I agree with homeostasis, but uh, the way that I've always thought about how transient satisfaction is going back to understanding the science Mm -hmm. is from an evolutionary standpoint, if you ate a meal and it was satisfying forever, Mm -hmm. you would starve to death right? because you would only eat once. Right. And so knowing that evolution will conserve, conserve, conserve. If I have this mechanism that makes sure that I go do the thing again, that is basically this um, rise and fall of satisfaction that happens with everything that I would be in trouble if I only did once. Right. So uh, thirst, yeah. satisfaction, right. gonna rise and fall, hunger, right. rise and fall, sex, rise and fall, right? right? Consumption, um, consumption, achievement, pursuit, achievement, hierarchy, yeah, yeah, yeah. prestige, the watch, the car, the house, all of well, it. Well, now it's interesting. Now I wonder. So we're saying exactly the same homeostasis. thing. That is homeostasis. Because the the watch losing its thing, although it's probably the same mechanism, is because the, it's trying to get me to go do more, go right. do more. Never and but here's the thing about it: that the reason we don't we don't ever realize that. You when you think you know, people say, "Should I move to California?" Because then I'll be permanently happy because of the sunshine. No, the big benefit that you get from mood benefit from sunshine is six months, but the taxes are forever. (laughs) So I have to tell Tell you about it. (laughs) So I'm not trying to hurt you, man. So um, the key thing to understand about homeostasis is that mother nature doesn't want you to know it exists. Mm. Mother nature has homeostasis so that you'll be ready for the next set of circumstances, but fools you again and again and again into thinking that this time the satisfaction will be permanent and it never is. By the way, this is physical too. So you step off the treadmill and you're 
your heart is going 135 beats per minute, which you're doing for good cardiovascular health. Within 15 minutes, your heart rate has gone back to its base rate so you don't die. Mm. Well, the same thing is true with your emotions. Homeostasis has to reset you. But when it comes to the satisfactions that we seek, you know, caloric or, you know, propagation of the genes through mating and all the stuff that we want to do, we always think that that relationship will give me permanent satisfaction. Because if you knew, if you knew, then you'd be like, that's going to give me 10 minutes of happiness. I'm not even going to do it. And you'd stop being, you'd, you'd stay, you'd, you wouldn't be in the hustle. You wouldn't be in the fight anymore. You wouldn't go get the banana off the top of the tree and risk your life. You wouldn't trudge across the savannah to get that meal you would lose your motivation. And Mother Nature wants you to be motivated. And she does that by fooling you so that you think that this time I'm really going to love that car forever. And it's like a month, (laughs) it turns out. So that's, so satisfaction is a real conundrum. Only when you understand the science can you short circuit the science. Only when you, when you understand the matrix, can you find a glitch? Can you find the glitch in the matrix? That's why it's so incredibly empowering because there is a way around that for satisfaction. The same thing is true for enjoyment, by the way. Everybody thinks they enjoy it. It's just, you know, pleasure. Wrong. Pleasure is not the secret of happiness. Pleasure is the, is the, is the, is the short way to get addiction. Hmm. And nobody ever says, you know, yeah, man, you know the secret to my happiness? Methamphetamine. Never. Nobody ever says, oh, yeah, it's like partying away my entire paycheck in Vegas and then my wife leaving me. That's, that's not the secret of happiness. That's the secret to pleasure. And pleasure is not connected to happiness unless you take pleasure and you add two things, people and memory. If you add pleasure plus people plus memory, you get enjoyment. Uh, those must be stand-ins for something. What are the the people and the memories Communion for? and consciousness. So, so just, uh, I you am, have to do it I'm together. I'm a social species and yeah. I'm going to get tremendously rewarded. This, uh, this is a good time to bring up. So... I'm really obsessed with this idea that running in the back of your mind are evolutionary algorithms and there's no escaping them. And Mm -hmm. so there are just certain things you are going to have to do if you want to, I don't know if you're going to agree with this framing, but if you, if you're going to feel the way you want to feel, Mm -hmm. you must be aware of these algorithms. You must acknowledge them. Right. So I've always tried to migrate people away from happiness not as you define yeah. it, as the smell of the turkey. Right. Stop worrying about Stop the worrying emotion. about happy feelings. Right, exactly. Right. Because they're so transient. Correct. And get to fulfillment. Correct. And fulfillment for me has a formula. I'll be interested to see if you agree with this. Um, these are based on what I consider the evolutionary algorithms running in your mind that there is no escape from. So you are going to have to work hard. Anything that comes easily will just not... It won't resonate. That's a satisfaction issue, by the way. Satisfaction is the joy that comes after struggle. That's what satisfaction is. So you get satisfaction. Does it always have to come from struggle. It ha- you have to do something, and it's a, the sense of earning but something. Whoa. So, for example, if Can you I, if you, che- you cheat on the exam, yes, and you get an A. There's no satisfaction. True, but I feel deeply satisfied after good sex. Do I feel like I earned it? I don't know. I have not investigated this feeling. Yeah, but that's Do that's actually think? that's that's not satisfaction. That's enjoyment. Is it? That's what you in satisfaction. You don't feel sexually satisfied. Well, that's a word that we use, but it's different than what we're talking about here. So it's it, and again, we're, we're tra- defining the terms of the which problem, which I think is important, super important, because right? you may be about to have me separate two ideas yeah. that because I don't have words for. I yeah, don't people see the talk difference. about sexual satisfaction where they're talking yes. about a sexual enjoyment. So an enjoyment is there a better is some, word when you're for it. Done. So when I am mm-hmm. overcome with desire, right. the right way to think of it for me is hunger. It feels the same. Right. 
I've got to have this thing. I really want it. Anticipatory chemicals. Right. Oh my God. And then I get it. Right. And so like I'll differentiate between masturbation and sex. Right. When I masturbate, I don't necessarily feel satisfied. That's one of the things that makes that such a whatever pursuit. Whereas when I have sex, I feel satisfied. Yeah. Like there's some deeper thing in me. Yeah. And, and it, it, it is an extinguishing of the hunger, but because I have oxytocin and vasopressin, it's like, oh man, I feel so good. So it's this combination of the calming of that, like seeking behavior with like, and I feel so bonded and connected to this person. Yeah, this is just terms. So uh, the way to think about it in, in this particular framework is pleasure versus enjoyment. Got it. Okay. So pleasure is, you know, something that pornography is associated with pleasure. Um, sexual activity in a, in a, in a pair bonded relationship is, 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 is associated with enjoyment because it has people in memory. And so one of the things to keep in mind, a strategy, especially for a lot of young people, a lot of young men is to, is to, is if you like something, it's best if you're not doing it alone, because then you're probably Full in a, stop. It not necessarily. This is just kind of a rule of thumb. This is not a, this is not an iron law, but it's a mm. rule of thumb. Doing it alone is associated with pleasure. So, you know, uh, um, Anheuser-Busch doesn't do ads about beer where they show a dude pounding a 12 pack alone in his apartment. Right? Why not? Be, because be that would be ad, that perhaps. would be. A, yeah, because a lot of people use alcohol for pleasure, right. which leads to addiction and misery. They taught, they see, you know, you and me cracking open a Bud Light and clink and talking about how great it is and because we're friends and we're making mm. a memory. And that's enjoyment, which is associated with happiness. Mm. So we have, a, we have a, a basic idea that the same thing is true with the, the example of sex that you talked about a minute ago. You can, it can be pleasure or it can be enjoyment. And everybody knows the difference between sexual experiences that are pleasurable or enjoyable. Mm. And Enjoy, enjoyment is the goal because that's one of the macronutrients of happiness. We talk about in term in the terms that you define about satisfaction, but it's really a, in, in this terminology. And again, you know, you have to just defining terms. These are just words, but sure. the concepts underlying them are, are are critical. In the book, you give a really good example of pleasure without enjoyment. Yeah, uh, which you mentioned obliquely a minute ago. But when you think of a drug addict, yeah. They're doing the drug, right? They're theoretically getting the pleasure, but they're not getting any of the enjoyment, right? They're getting tons of pleasure. It's because they're loading only on pleasure, mm. but no enjoyment because it's not social and it actually is not engaging the prefrontal cortex and the hippocampus to create memory. And so you you, you will you simply will have a transient experience, mm. and the transient experience will be unsatisfying, and so you'll hit the lever again and again and again and again, and it will lower your quality of life. So that's the key thing. If there's something you really really love. So, for example, I'll, I'll ask people, people will talk about, because you know, I've done a lot of work on the on the, the science of addiction. And it's a very interesting subject. People say, how do you know if you're addicted? Because these are behavioral constructs. You know, you can't take a blood test to know if you're if you're an alcoholic, mm, if you're, you know. That's it, interesting. So it's, these are behavioral. And the big behavioral thing is, do you prefer to drink alone? Do you prefer to actually become inebriated alone? That means you're looking for pleasure versus enjoyment. And that is a, mm. that, that is, has a lot that will lead you more to addiction, more toward addiction and away from happiness is the way that that works. That's the reason that people say never drink alone. They don't know what they're saying is they're saying, mm. enjoy it. Don't have it be a source of pleasure because that's dangerous. So that gives you an idea. So we've talked a little bit about satisfaction, talking a little bit about enjoyment. These are heavy, heavy topics in terms of the social science and neuroscience for sure. And we haven't even touched on meaning, which is the heaviest of them all, which is the hardest of them all. So you can become an, uh, 
what I really want is I want people to be to be obsessed with to have their hobby be the science of happiness and how they can get it and spread it. Because that would be a, a really meritorious movement. If people were like, yeah, more of the science, more understanding it. I want to be excellent at this. I want to be most excellent. My hobby is getting better at happiness. And it's changed my life. It's a good hobby. It's really been it's a good hobby a good for career, me. Yeah. I made it into a career. That you most certainly did. Um, yeah. So I want to close the loop on the fulfillment recipe and get your right. take on that. So uh, you have to work really hard because that's just nature right. ensures that you're going to do that so that you're out doing the hard things like getting a meal, protecting your mm -hmm. family, et cetera, uh, to acquire a set of skills. Right. That's a big lean on progress because I agree. Progress, I think is a foundational pillar of human happiness. Right. Uh, so you're going to work really hard to gain a set of skills that allow you to serve yourself and others. Right. And it needs to be in a way that you find exciting. Uh -huh. So that to me is, those are the things that nature is going to ensure that you do. And if you're the doing it for not only yourself, but others is the meaning portion of this. Right. Um, why do, is it that people never stop to identify what gives them meaning is it that they confuse meaning? Is that they're stuck in the me self? Why do so few people so few people end up cracking that code? Part of the reason is because they're not specifically trying to find meaning. They don't make it a goal. They just they, they, they a lot of people believe that if I do what I'm really really good at and I can be successful at that it's going to give me a ton of meaning automatically. Mm -hmm. And that's not right. Like anything else, you have to do things on purpose. Did you get meaning when you were a classical musician? No. That was the reason. That's the reason I'm not a classical Could musician. you have gotten meaning out of it? Many people do. But here's the thing. I, I, my, my favorite composer is Johann Sebastian Bach. Mm. Maybe the greatest composer who ever lived. That's a great story. Yeah. I mean, uh, 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 1685 to 1750, 20 kids. He had 20 kids? Yeah, yeah. He was, a pr he was productive as a composer and I as a father. I would say, was he Catholic? He wasn't. He was Lutheran. <laughs> but, um, but he was... Uh, <clears throat> I say that because I know you're Catholic. For yeah, those listening he, who wonder why I made a joke about He was just a sexy Lutheran. But yeah. in, in, in Bach was asked near the end of his life why he wrote music it the why question you know our our friend simon sinek he always talks about start with why and it's fantastic mm. i mean it's been because it, it really is you know people are going around asking what and hoping to get the why for free and simon's entrepreneurial twist is start with why and then the what will come automatically and you'll be a lot more satisfied because you'll find the source of meaning so box why when he was asked why do you write music was the aim and final end of all music is the refreshment of the soul and the glorification of God. Okay, not bad, not bad. Not bad at all. But I read that in my late 20s when I was still, I was in the Barcelona Symphony in those days. And it's a good job. And it was, you know, I love the music. It's really into it. It's kind of a high prestige job, you know, playing the greatest. It still sounds cool. It sounds cool. Sounds cool, yeah. But I couldn't, I couldn't answer like that. I couldn't answer like that. I didn't feel like I was refreshing souls, particularly I certainly didn't feel like I was glorifying God. I was you kinda, built that in though. Cause I this is know. one thing I always think people think they're going to find me. It wasn't my thing. It meaning. just wasn't my thing. Hmm. And so I went in search of something where I could answer my why question like Bach. I, I became a social became, scientist. That was the, that thing? was it. Because you know, when I, I because I, after that, you also, you, you go on to run the think tank after that, right? Right. Yeah. So I got my PhD. I actually finished college a month before my 30th birthday mm -hmm. by correspondence. So this is not a typical path to, you know, a professorship at Harvard. Obviously this is not typically the way it gets done. This is a great country, isn't it? Agreed. I, I, yeah. Um, 
Me, a kid from Puyallup can do this. It's fantastic. Crazy. I love that. So, um, and then I went and I, I got so interested when I was doing my, my bachelor's degree in the, in human behavior and the fact that you can model it and you can study it that I, I, I went back and got my master's and PhD as a social scientist, as a quantitative social scientist, I was mm -hmm. doing for a living, I was doing military operations research at the Rand corporation for, you know, like secret stuff for the air force and all that, but you know, using, and you felt the sense of meaning in all that. I was, what I felt the sense of meaning in was I was learning so much that was so critically interesting. And I had a strong sense that I was going to, I was learning how to ask and answer original questions about human behavior. that were going to push the boundary of what we knew so that people's lives could get better. I had a very strong sense that it was going to, it was in the offing. It was going to take decades. Was the part about so people's lives could be better. Was that a critical, critical. part of that? It was a critical thing okay. to earn my success. I needed to do something where my work created value in my life and the life of other people. Mm. That's I what think I felt that like that I is so big. And look, you cover this in the book. So I know yeah. this isn't mysterious to you, but yeah. uh, focusing outward, like if you want to be happy, we don't need, this is me paraphrasing you again. We don't need self-care. We need other care. Right. And I just have learned uh, through unfortunate trial and error that if I'm doing something only for me, it I'll run ashore on the me, me, me problem. Totally. totally. And, and so you get into the me self world. Mm -hmm. It's all me self. You know, other care is I self. It's I'm going to look outward at what other people need. I'm going to be thinking more about them, which gets me away from the the boring, repetitive tedium of the me, me, me soundtrack to begin with. I mean, it has, I mean, it's just simple. You're, you're distracted from the stuff that's so boring. And yet, so um, you look at so obsessively over the course of your life. So that's critically important. And you find, I mean, again, there's tons and tons of studies that actually show that the more you give, the happier you get, the more you give, the richer you get, the more you give, the better looking you are. It's a, it's a wonderful study. What? It's all perception. So there's this one study where these guys, these social psychologists, they they bring men. It's a it, men into the lab who are partnered, and it's all heterosexual couples. And they bring them in. Some have been dating for six months, and some have been married for fifty years. And the, the guys in white lab coats. And they say, okay, it's a simple experiment. I'm gonna, sir, I'm gonna give you these coins. Put them in your pocket. You and your wife or girlfriend, you're gonna walk down this little path to that other building down there. And my colleague is going to interview you. And then you get to keep the money. That's it. Like, okay. So I walk down this little path outside and there's an alleyway between the buildings. And this homeless guy comes ambling out of the alley and panhandles the husband or boyfriend. He's a confederate to the experiment, obviously. He says, hey, you got some change? He does. They know he does because they put the right. money in his pocket. Yeah, yeah, and he has yeah. to make a decision in front of his wife on whether he's going to help the homeless guy. They get to the other building and the first question in the interview is, did you help the homeless guy? How much did you give him? And then the second question is to the wife, how attractive do you find him right now? The more you support the homeless guy, the hotter she finds you. That's so interesting. <laughs> That's the reason on a first date, you're like, I love humanity. I support, uh, I, you know, I build houses for the poor. Yeah. I love dogs. I love babies. You're trying to look like, you know, Albert Schweitzer on a first date. That's hilarious. Because <laughs> you're more handsome. That is very interesting. Okay, so um, we know that being outward focused is going to be beneficial, but you were talking about um, you needed to find the answer to your why. What is going to be that thing that right. I could answer in the way that Bach does? I find in life, basically nobody finds that. Like that, that is so rare. Right. Uh, and when they do find it, it ends up being very transient. Right. So 
how did you navigate? Because your career, for people that don't know, we we did another interview, which right. I highly encourage them to go watch. And so we covered this. I don't want to tread uh, a ton of the same ground, but I think it's worth telling people you've, would you say that your career has been spiral? Yeah, for sure. Okay. You gave me the language. Mine right. has for sure. Yeah. Um, I, I, it's interesting. You make me question whether that's just my personality and I was going to end up there no matter what, mm-hmm. or if it really was what I, the story I've told myself my entire life, which is I did all of this just to get into storytelling and I needed to control the assets. Maybe, maybe we'll get into that. <laughs> well, those are, later. that's, those are endogenous to each other. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. But I, what I want to know now is did your why run out and that's why you reinvented yourself? Did it just migrate? Like how have you kept that alive in your life? I I took opportunities that were put in my path that I thought were in line with this vision of how I was trying to grow. So I had a intention, but I didn't have attachment. Mm -hmm. So when I was a French horn player, leaving that becoming a social scientist, I, I had an intention to do this work on human behavior to, as it, to help myself and others, to make life better, to increase love and happiness in mm-hmm. other people's lives. But I was not attached to what manifestation that was going to take. And that's what I urge all young people to do, to have a virtuous, beautiful intention with that attachment with respect to the the expression that it's going to take at any particular time. I taught for a number of years. I loved it. Super great. Then I thought I should run something that I think is going to be good for humanity and for society you know, until I ran this think tank, this big think tank in Washington, D.C. I have 300 employees. Mostly I just raised money. I had to raise $50 million a year to keep the doors open. And it was a thrilling experience. It was exhausting to be sure. But what I was trying to do was to use my background as a social scientist to create better public policy, to hire really good people that was going to, to make the country and the world freer and better with an emphasis on opportunity for people at the margins of society, which is what my think tank was engaged in. After about 10 years, I knew... I was getting stale, man. I was getting stale. So I had the same intention, but I had no attachment to Arthur Brooks, president of the American Enterprise Institute. That was a that would be a disordered attachment because that's not who I am. I'm Arthur Brooks. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a child of God. And I am put on earth to lift people up in bonds of love and happiness using science and ideas. What's the next assignment? What's the next assignment? And the next assignment was to do what I do now, which is I have a company that teaches, writes, speaks, and teaches widely and does media on the science of happiness to popularize, to see the world as a classroom and an enormous course of study of the science of happiness to lift people up. And that, you know, so I can, I have, I have a column in the Atlantic and I write books and I get to talk to you and I get to travel and speak and teach at Harvard and it's phenomenal, but that's, not, I'm not attached mm. because I know this is not the last assignment. I have intention, but the attachment, no, 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 no. The attachment's the killer of all of these things. And, and you too. It's like, Mm-mm. next assignment, please. Mm. But here's the direction we're going in. I need to do this thing. This thing is going to serve. And when you're really in the zone, it's, it's a thrill. It's a thrill. You just can't get enough of it when you're really in the zone too. But it's not because you're going for the thrill. It's because you're going for the value. You want the you want to hit that vein of value, right? And when you run that vein out, then you go look for it. You dig a new mine. What does it mean to run the vein out, though? So, um, okay, how pure was your move into the the think tank? Because you talk about idols. I've listened to enough of your content. I know mm-hmm. what your idol is. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we share an idol. 
Um, so I, I, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Yeah. So I don't know that having an idol is bad. I have a feeling that it's nature's way of getting us moving and making us an active species. And it is and you how can we use it for great good. Right. Exactly. But if it's the end goal, if an idol of money or power or pleasure or fame is the end goal, we'll be unto you and we'll be unto the world. Mm. But if it's an intermediate goal to lifting people up and bringing them together, if you can use the prestige that you have in your job and the admiration of other people to get them interested in something that's truly generative and good and improve their lives, which by the way, you're doing with the show, right? I mean, you've got lots of prestige, you're a famous guy, mm. but you're using it so that people will watch it and change their lives. So this is the yeah. end goal. It's a problem. If it's an intermediate goal, then it's good. I want to uh, restate this in my language to see if I really understand right. this. Okay, so the me self is getting caught up in my emotions. I'm confusing the emotion for the perception of the emotion. So knowing that in the brain, pain and suffering are two separate spaces, mm -hmm. knowing literally two different regions of the brain, not making that up for people listening. Uh, and then uh, in meditation, I am to your point earlier about uh, the bitter coffee, there's a difference between um, my knee hurts and witnessing that I'm having a sensation in my knee that right. one might articulate. Or my knee hurts pain. versus I don't like how my knee feels. Right. That's Probably really the big difference because, you know, it's my knee hurts. It's a, that's a statement of fact. Right. Right. It's a signal. And the one last thing I'll wrap on that to see if I really get this. So uh, Viktor Frankl talked about the gap between stimulus and response. Right. Now, for people that haven't heard that name, he was in a concentration camp, lost his wife, mom, dad. I mean, just unimaginable amounts of loss right. and came out of it. Psychiatrist came out or actually, I think a, a psychiatrist and he was a psychiatrist and, and a psychoanalyst, Okay, which Perfect. is an interesting combination. Very interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. Writes a book about that time, basically saying if you could find meaning in your suffering that you could make it. But if you lost that sense, he was like, you could literally predict when somebody would die because once they gave up and they could no longer associate meaning with why they were going through the suffering, that was it. Right. And so that idea of there's this gap between stimulus and response and you get to decide mm -hmm. how you interpret that thing is everything. Right. Is that what you're talking about? When that gap goes away, you're now in me territory. Yeah. So so there's, there's so much in this and, and, you know, we've referred to the, you know, the new book and there's a, the whole front part of this new book is emotional self-management based on the science of how your brain gives you signals that are called emotions, getting away from the idea that bad emotions are unfortunate. We should get rid of them and, or that unhappiness for them is bad and we should get rid of it. So understanding the science of how this works and what these things are for, and then being able to learn, grow and manage the feelings that we want such that we can adapt best to the current world and we can make growth toward happierness mm. that's that's the whole uh, front part of this book the back half is okay now that you've done that build the life you want build the life you the want way. yeah co-authored with oprah winfrey exactly right exactly right it's um, a good book by the way i'm glad you like it thank you it's um it was a joy to write it it's a joy writing a book with oprah winfrey mm. too what an experience it was really an interesting experience to and and recording the book the audio book too because you keep thinking Oh, I know that voice. Mm. <laughs> Not mine. So, um, so, so emotional self-management comes down to number one, uh, understanding that emotions that you have are not just nice to have and bad to have. All they are are signals. They're like a machine. The machine of your brain perceives outside stimuli and turns it into a universal language that can, that can send signals to the neocortex of your brain, the out, 
outside wrinkly area of your brain, especially the prefrontal cortex, which is the most modern part of the human brain, to send it signals so that you can decide how to react according to them. And it doesn't matter what language you speak or where you grew up, you everybody gets the same signals. They get the basic emotions of joy, of interest, which are the two positive basic emotions, the negative emotions, which doesn't mean that they're bad, just means that they're negative, mm-hmm. anger, disgust, sadness, fear. And all those things are then blended together into these complex emotions. So anger and disgust, you blend them together, you get contempt, which is the conviction of the worthlessness of something. And so it's, it's this multiplicity of emotions that we get. They exist to send signals, universal signals, and then we get to decide how to react. Here's the problem. Most people don't take that opportunity. Most people take their emotions as given, regret them, like them, and act according to them without doing that last trick, that last entrepreneurial trick, which is deciding how to react. You get Mm -hmm. to decide. This is Viktor Frankl's point. The book is Man's Search for Meaning. And what he learned in the concentration camp was that all these bad things are happening and good things happen in life. You decide how you're going to react to these things. That's the ultimate entrepreneurial task of human life is deciding how you're going to use the resources under your control. And the first set of resources you get are your emotions. Okay, so the time between the stimulus and response, the time between the, the emotions and the reactions that you decide, that's the gap that Viktor Frankl is talking about. You want that to be as wide as possible. That's why and every time you have an emotion, the most important thing to do is to not react, is to, get, is to practice not reacting when you feel something, good or bad. It's Tom Bilyeu here. And if you are addicted to the relentless pursuit of greatness, then I've got something special for you guys. The Motivation Daily Podcast by Motiversity. It's your daily fix of motivation, inspiration, and wisdom featuring the best speeches and speakers on the planet. We cover it all. Life, business, relationships, discipline, purpose, mental health, sports, studying, focus, you name it. With exclusive speeches from heavy hitters like Coach Payne, Billy Allsbrooks, Marcus Taylor, Dr. Jessica Houston, Walter Bond, and more. If you're ready to take control, level up, or just crush your day, then Motivation Daily Podcast is your secret weapon. Search for the Motivation Daily Podcast and follow wherever you listen to amazing podcasts. If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third-generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation, and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. 
Wait, tell, tell me why. Cause this is where I see people get lost all the, all the time. time. They trust their emotions. Yeah. They think their emotions are right. They are a map of actual reality. And that if you feel angry, you should act angry. Yeah. And that's, 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 that's a great way to live an unhappy life and make other people unhappy around you. I agree so violently. Yeah. I can't even tell you. Yeah. Yeah. And think about all the times when you're building your companies that, that you, you felt something negative. And if you just yelled that you snapped at somebody or said that was on your mind, you would have done catastrophic brain damage Correct. to your company. It would have been terrible. And instead, as, or you get that email, you know, you get an email and, and it's like, I want, I want to, I want to answer right yeah. now. Don't never answer a bad email on the day you get it. Never just have an automatic. As a matter of fact, have somebody who's managing your email for you. So you don't see them. Mm-hmm. You, you see them and you think about it, but you can't answer it because it disappears from your inbox for 24 hours. Make a deal with somebody. Why? Because you want to, you want to, your, your, your prefrontal cortex to be in charge. You don't want your limbic system to be in charge. It's a two-year-old, you know, when kids, when you have little kids and, you know, I have, I have grown kids, but now I have grandchildren and, and they yell. And, and what you tell little kids always is use your words. What you're telling them is put more time between stimulus and response mm-hmm. and choose the response that you want. You're not going to say that to a little kid. You're going to say something that's truncated, like use your words. You, and, and people who are reactive, what we say as social scientists, we call them limbic people because they're, they're acting according to their limbic system. This mm-hmm. is the most unentrepreneurial thing to do. That's basically like, I got a dollar, I spent a dollar. No, 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 no. Revenue comes in, you decide what to do. Should you invest it? Should you distribute it? Should you buy something with it? What should you do? That, that's what good entrepreneurs do with their lives, but that's how we need to see our emotions. So that's the most important point. Now, what you do in that gap is called metacognition. And this is where it gets really, really interesting. In that gap, the best thing that you can possibly do is to think about the emotions that you're feeling, what they mean, and how best to use them. So that, and, and this is, this is really the engagement of your prefrontal cortex. That's what meditation practices tell you to do. This is what prayer helps you to do. This is what walking in nature helps you to do. So all these metacognitive practices, this is what therapy is supposed to do too, by the way, it's supposed to give you expertise in expanding that gap. But then on top of that, there's all of these ideas that you can use. Once you've, you've got this time, you can make these decisions. You can, you can substitute emotions. You can say, that's not the right emotion. Here's a better emotion. You can literally do that. How's that not just faking it? It's not. It's what it's. So, so for example, um, I work, um, I've talked a lot and, and I've been palling around lately with, you know, Rain Wilson, who's the, you know, the actor yeah, from the office. Him on the show. He's terrific. And, and we grew up, he grew up in Ballard. Yeah. Yeah. And so five miles away from me, he's just the same age as me. He was a classical musician, just like I was. Oh, I, I didn't, didn't know, know him, but we have Wait, parallel. Did he play like bassoon or he something? He played the bassoon. I played yeah, the French okay, horn. So we that. probably yeah, overlapped yeah. in Allstate Band or something as we were kids, but we have the same childhood basically. And so it's interesting. And so we really connect on this. But for example, he talks about the fact that most, uh, he believes that most comedians suffer from depression. Hmm. And one of the reasons they're such good comedians is because they choose the substitute emotion when they're feeling sadness of humor, which is also an appropriate response to things that are making you sad. You make them into a joke. And people think of it as a defense mechanism. No, it's an emotional substitution. It's the, when you drink coffee, the the, the caffeine molecule, it looks just like the adenosine molecule, which is a neuromodulator that, that is inhibitory. It makes you feel tired. It goes into the slot into the neuro, the receptor for the adenosine. And so you don't get adenosine. That's what makes you feel peppy. 
it blocks the thing that makes you feel tired. That's how caffeine works. Emotional substitution works in the same way. The humor molecule goes into the sadness receptor. But you can't do that unless you're taking time. You cannot do that unless you actually expand the time between stimulus and response until you understand exactly how the science works and, and getting as much time as you possibly can. Was that the angle that you took to understand the science or did you come at it from a God says that this is the way to go about life? I'm a scientist, you know, and one of the reasons that I am religious is because of my because of what I've learned intellectually. So was, for me, that was the the thing that freed me as well was, so I'm call it 22. I am very unhappy, like really scary, sliding towards depression, right. unhappy. And I started reading about the brain. Now, I don't remember what gave me that impulse. It was probably something I learned in college plus Taoism, whatever, but it like really made me think about the way the brain worked. Mm. And I started reading about how brain plasticity was this hotly debated thing. And maybe you really could teach an old dog new tricks. And one day I just decided I'm going to act as if brain plasticity is real. Right. And then the more studies came out that showed that it really was real, right. like the more I felt like I could grab a hold of that. But it was, it was a science based insight that allowed me to really change the tenor of my entire life. For sure. For sure. I mean, it's interesting because people back when, when I was a kid, I'm you know ten years old, little ten years older than you. And when I was a kid, or even when people were older who, than me were coming through, that the whole idea was that biology is just psychology. Mm. You know that you can you can think bad things away, and that was supposed to be really incredibly empowering. Now, really, what we believe with the advent of you know the advances in neuroscience, you know, as a social scientist, I have to know tons of neuroscience. Teaching happiness is thirty percent neuroscience. What I teach, mm. I'm talking about the brain constantly. It's much more the case, we believe, that psychology is actually biology. Facts. And, and that sounds like it's not empowering. Like this is all wow, determined. super empowering. It's thing. super empowering because once you actually understand the process, you can intervene in the process. Correct. I talk to for young executives, for example, and I say one of the biggest threats to your career is an inappropriate sexual relationship in the workplace. Dude, it's that's one of so the, hilarious to me. It's, and, and, and so we say, so let's understand how this is going to work. And you can psychologize it and say, you know, you need to be, and get, get some therapy. No, 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 no. What happens is that the first thing when you, have a, when you have attraction towards somebody who's a potential romantic partner, there's, the first thing that happens is sex hormones with testosterone and estrogen. And in, in combination in both males and females, this is happening. The second thing that happens in the neurochemical cascade of falling in love is there's an up um, and uh, there's a, uh, an increase in norepinephrine and dopamine so that you get the sense of euphoria and anticipation. The third thing that happens is a drop in serotonin. Now, what happens when serotonin, a drop, a drop in, serotonin. in serotonin, Interesting. when serotonin drops, it makes you ruminate. That's the reason it's associated with clinical depression because of the rumination uh. procedure. It's, it's a, there's a part of the brain called the ventrolateral prefrontal cortex, which is incredibly active when you're ruminating. It, it's one of the things when you're ruminating on a business plan, on an opera, on a poem, on somebody who's rejected you, on, you know, and so it's, 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 you see it incredibly active in depression and creativity and falling in love mm. and all of these things that all have rumination, you know, iterative rumination involved in it. So, and it all is involved with a, a drop in serotonin, which is why you don't want to have that early stage of falling in love for the rest of your life because you'll want to die. Oh. And then, and then the last thing you'll want to die. The early stages <laughs> of love made me feel like I'd never get anything done again. Yeah. Yeah. It makes you feel out of control. 
your brain looks suspiciously like an MRI addict, in the brain of a, a methamphetamine addict. Yeah, and, yeah. You know, that's how it felt. Yeah. I legitimately yeah. felt like I was on For sure. drugs. And then awesome. you get the tide, the warm tide that comes in of the increases in oxytocin, which mm. is a bonding neuropeptide that functions as a hormone of the brain. You get that before it's reciprocated? You, you, well, I mean, what it happens when you have eye contact with somebody in a love connection Whoa. and eye contact, so you're both getting it. The, the biggest bolus that you get of that is when you first lay eyes on, on eye contact with your newborn baby. Really? Yeah. It's just like 4th of July in your head. But anyway, so it's one, two, three, four. That's the neurochemical cascade. And the mm-hmm. reason I bring this up is when I'm talking to young people in business, I say, if you do not intervene early enough in this neurochemical cascade, you're going to be in trouble because it'll be out of control. It'll be like, you know, no brakes on the roller coaster. And and it's like, I have this incredible career and this incredible job. I don't know what happened. We slept together and now I'm fired. And you see it all the time. Like Harvard Business School case study. Uh, what happened? Well, they let the neurochemical cascade go too long and you have to intervene. Number one, don't put yourself in a position where you go to step two. Don't put yourself in a position where you go to step three. What are you doing? You're managing your brain. And if you don't know the brain science, you can't do that. That's why this stuff is so incredibly empowering. And when you read that stuff for the first time, you're like, oh, there's something I can do here. Now there's something I can use. It's not just psychology. Mm. Now it's something that's more tangible than that because the, the grandeur of this entire experience has a biological basis and one that I can understand and one I can, I can actually manage. Yeah, for me, being able to picture the thing, that helps a lot. Sure. Yeah. Once I could understand um, the myelination process, I was like, oh, okay, now I get why this is something I need to repeat. Once I understood that the the brain is a caloric hog. And from an evolutionary standpoint, that means anything that you do repeatedly, it's going to hardwire just to make it more efficient. And so all of that coming together really allowed me to begin to Improve your habits. Well. Yeah, because sure. your habits, what they were doing was improving the management of the organ. Mm. And and that was affecting your psychology and your effectiveness and your happiness and and the whole, you know, the progress that you're making in your life. That's why in, the information is so critically important. That's why it can be so life-changing to learn science, mm. actually. For sure. So what are then the habits of happiness? Or maybe a better way, this is the language you use in the book, the macronutrients of yeah. happiness. Like yeah. what are those things that we want to begin building our lives around if we really want to thrive. So people define happiness in a lot of different ways, but the biggest mistake that people make make is thinking that it's a feeling, that happiness is a feeling. Ooh. It's not a feeling. Happiness Isn't has it? no happiness has feelings associated with it. Okay. But to say that my Thanksgiving turkey has a smell is different than saying that the smell of the turkey is the Thanksgiving dinner. Right. Fair. So that's a really big distinction that it's important to make. So your Thanksgiving dinner is protein, carbohydrates, and fat. That's literally what your Thanksgiving dinner is. It also has a delicious smell that attracts you to it and that you want. And if it didn't have that, or had the wrong smell. It smelled like you were, you know, microwaving trash when you walked into mom's house for Thanksgiving. You'd be like, something's wrong here. So, but getting past the feelings on happiness is what will set you free to be able to manage it appropriately. Yeah, because what I want to understand when you started the think tank and when you stopped, obviously, because we did the other interview and I know your other mm-hmm. book from strength to strength and I know the two big movements of somebody's life where you go from right. fluid intelligence to crystalline intelligence where you're really bringing wisdom to the table and that was your transitional moment right. between those two. So I understand all of that. But at the same time, I do wonder if um, there there were just other things caught up in it and that maybe the 
either I've heard you say you were no longer making progress when you were a French horn player, right. and that's what made you want to leave that. I'm wondering if you felt like you were no longer making progress in the think tank, and that's why you wanted to leave that. Like, is that the moment where we all go, oh, that's my cue now to find that next assignment? That's what we should use as a cue, the natural cadence of you know the value that you're creating you don't very very few people get to create more and more and more value in one exact thing over the course of their lives and we have an economy that accommodates change so it's really incumbent upon us to have our antennae up and pay attention to that because we want to be able to create that value and be open to the next assignment so yeah i mean my motives are never pure (laughs) because you know i'm just a guy and but i do have a process of discernment every philosophical and religious tradition has a process of discernment discernment is when you don't know what to do how you figure it out this is hard you know the decision making process and so i'll have students who are like i don't know should i do a startup or go work in investment banking or should i marry this person or not or should i go to law school or stay at work or or some some things are even more personal and and, and delicate and di- difficult but at any particular time a third of the people who are watching us are agonizing over a particular decision mm. so the question is how do you make these difficult decisions and every philosophical tradition has a process on how to make a decision and here's the key thing that they all have in common you got to do the work and to do the work means you need to think about it It doesn't mean you need to think about a particular thing. You need to think about that decision process every day. What are you thinking about? So when I have students that haven't even begun this process, Mm -hmm. I'll say, okay, 15 minutes a day. I want you to start by sitting alone at your desk. No music. No phone is not there. Write lists of things you like. You got to start getting in touch with the things that are attractive to you because some people are completely even divorced from that. They have no, they're so far away from being able to discern what they want to do that they don't even know what they like. And so Mm -hmm. just starting to write places I've gone that I really enjoyed and not because you're deciding where to go next, but just because you're trying to get that in order in your head. What are the things that are attractive to me? What are the things that I actually like? Um, I'll tell people that they have, that they should to be thinking about just the process to let the, discernment happen you have to be very quiet and very concerted in the effort to do so to walk for an hour before dawn every day with no devices Mm. and to do that so people who are really religious i'll say 15 minutes a day praying about this to be given the discernment to be given proper discernment 15 minutes a day on your knees so and or or meditation practice lots of ways to do difference between prayer and meditation is there one well, there's lots of forms of prayer and lots of forms of meditation. Mm. So there are a lot of meditation techniques, single point meditation, analytical meditation, um, uh, meditation of compassion, all different sort of in, in uh, Theravada but and Mahayana prayer, traditions. Are you trying to make your best case to God or are you just repeating an idea in your head like, please grant me the discernment to understand what I should do in this moment? So there are different ways to do it. There are different forms of prayer, even Christian prayer, even mm-hmm. Catholic prayer, which is what I engage in. So every night I pray 25 minutes, which is called the rosary, a thousand year old meditative prayer before I go to sleep every night. And that's a, a repeated thing you prayer. Repeat. And that, it's a thing that you repeat while you're meditating on particular mysteries that happened in biblical tradition. And what are you doing? You're focusing, you're, you're seeing your life through the lens of these great stories. 
And what that does is helps you understand yourself better and all kinds of insight, insight comes to you over the context of this process. That's a kind of a centering prayer. There are other prayers that are called, uh, you know, mental prayer, which the Buddhists call analytical meditation. The Dalai Lama wakes up every morning <clears throat> and the first two hours are analytical meditation where he'll just think deeply about a passage in Tibetan Buddhist scripture. He's thinking about it. He's not reading it. He's written down a few lines and he's looking at it and thinking about it for two hours. It has 88 and he's doing that for the first two hours of every day. That's analytical meditation. That's not just like looking at a flame or doing soul cycle or something. That's not, he's, and that's, a, that's also meditation. Incredibly important. Mental prayer is the same thing where you'll read a passage of scripture, whether your scripture is the, the suttas or the New Testament or whatever your thing is. And you read it and you say, and, and you say, what is this meaning to me? Where am I in this? How is this impacting my life? Two sentences, 15 minutes, more. It's crazy how much insight you can actually get from that. There's compassionate meditation or compassionate prayer where you, you bring into your mind the people that are giving you struggle. And you think about, you visualize good things happening to them and you ask God or you ask the cosmos that good things, that, that blessings be rained down upon them and you change the nature of your orientation toward them. The biggest reason that you have enmity with other people is because of your enmity toward them, not theirs toward you, typically. Mm -hmm. And you can literally change that. And this is one of the techniques for doing so. So different kinds of prayer and meditation, they have different functions, but we have to use them as such and not just be kind of like, all right, like like a little kid, like, God, I sure hope I get an A on that exam. Can you please help me get an A on that exam? You have to be a grown up about this stuff. Mm. And it's super exciting. And it, so that's the process of discernment when you're trying to figure out what to do is you have to concentrate on it. The, the ancient Greeks called it sunesis. Um, in the Pali Buddhist tradition, in the Mahayana Buddhist tradition, it's called panna. And in this discernment of spirits in Ignatian Catholic spirituality, every tradition has it where you're focused on it, focused on it, focused on it for a particular period of time. If you do the work where you're focused on the decision, looking for the insight for 15 minutes a day for two months, you'll have clarity. That's the guarantee. It's amazing. Hmm. But the reason that people can't get clarity is because they don't do the work. Hmm. They, they don't do the analysis. Time. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay. Uh, Walk me through the idols. What yeah. what are the idols and how do we use them well instead of being used by them? So this is a tradition that comes from um, Neoplatonism, sort of from Plato, as best stated by his great pupil Aristotle, and then translated into the Islamic, Jewish, and Christian traditions in the Middle Ages. So Averroes, who is the you know the the the, the Muslim philosopher from 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 southern Spain. Um, uh, uh, Moshe ben Mamon, Mamonides, and Thomas Aquinas. So these are the, you know, St. Thomas Aquinas, these are the great figures of this. And they really, they, they translated Aristotle into saying that uh, uh, Aristotle was the greatest of all the social scientists. Hmm. I mean, to, to, I realize I'm cheapening Aristotle in this way by saying it, but it's, it's kind of a conceit that everybody you love is like, Tom, you're a great social scientist. That's like the ultimate compliment from a social scientist. So by the way, you're a very good social scientist. So, kind. and he, and so for example, Aquinas said that there's four substitutes for God that he, he believed as did Averroes and, and Maimonides and all of the, the monotheistic religious leaders that what we ultimately want is God. Now, Atheists watching us or agnostics disagree with that, but we all want something. Can you define what that means then? To define, to want God? Yeah, because I, 
I have a feeling even atheists want a thing to fit that God-shaped hole, but I've never taken the time for myself to define what the God-shaped hole is. So I'd love to know. Yeah. So this is is the thing, for example, you're looking for something that's defined by your craving. You know, when you're, when you're really, really hungry, it, it proves the existence of food. When you're really, really horny, it proves the existence of sex, right? And so when you're really, really are seeking the complex singularity, mm. the source of all truth, the cosmic oneness is proof that it exists. But what is it? But what is it? Okay. So that's what different traditions have been trying to explain for mm. the longest time. This is really interesting though, by the way, I don't want to just let that roll past. Yeah. Yeah. Hunger is the proof that there is food. Yeah. The desire for sex is the proof that there is sex. Yeah. The desire for or it's this evidence thing. that there is sex. It's, made, it's not yeah. a proof in the classical sense, but it's evidence Fair that it exists. Evidence. And so it would be really, really, really weird if you had a craving for something and that the object of the exist. craving didn't exist. It doesn't yeah. really make sense. Yeah. And so if you have a craving oh, for the oneness, Arthur Brooks, yeah. this is good. Yeah. And this is, by the way, this is one of the reasons that when all of the conversations that we're having about AI, mm. they're all misguided. AI can't give us what we want. It can't because all it does is gives us complicating engineering solutions for a simulacrum for the thing that we're for a simulation for the thing that we really, really want, which is a different species of problem. You know, what we really want is the, is the object of all the complexity of the universe. Complexity is simple to understand and impossible to solve. Complication is hard to solve, but possible. Mm. All of the reasons that all these things that we do in tech that are that promise everything and deliver nothing but loneliness, the reason is because they're com- complicated solutions to complex needs. Love is complex. It's very easy to understand and impossible to figure out. Your cat is complex. Very simple, but impossible to know what it's going to do. Mm-hmm. All the things we really want in life, all of our deep desires are complex. All of our solutions are complicated. And we're, we're throwing complicated solutions at complex problems and we're not getting happier. And so the only way that we can do this is to take quiet time in contemplation of the complex. That's the solution. Now, are you going to find it? No, no, but it's just like happiness. You're not going to find it. You're going to make progress toward it. The goal, the, 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 the metaphysical goal, the transcendental goal of a spiritual or philosophical life is the approach to the complex oneness, to the ultimate truth that we crave. And you got to do the work. Stop distracting yourself with social media. Stop distracting yourself by saying, if I make the money, then everything will be okay. Or if I have the prestige, and this gets us back to the idols. Aquinas said that we crave God, but will but God is complex and hard to understand and has all kinds of demands and and winds us up in all sorts of one-sided conversations. And uh, and so we take a complicated solution to the complex problem and things that are kind of godlike. You know, social media is kind of social life-like, which is why when we're lonely, we'll binge it, but it doesn't help. Mm. And the, the social media equivalent for what we want in God, according to Aquinas, is fourfold, money, power, pleasure, and honor by which he meant fame or admiration or prestige. That's what he said that the four things, and those are the idols and everybody's got their idol that when they're not on their game, looking for the cosmic oneness, despite the fact that they'll never find it, they'll say, okay, fine. I'm tired. I'm going to go do that thing. That's a, that's a simulation for it. And, and it always runs you in the wrong direction. 
it runs you in the wrong direction. And only when you know what your idol is, can you actually manage yourself. So you say, oh, I'm doing that again. I'm doing that again. I'm looking for money again when what I really wanted was love. I'm looking for admiration again when what I really wanted was enlightenment. Because you didn't want to do the work for enlightenment, so you went and did the easy thing, which was getting the idol. Mm. So is, is enlightenment a stand-in for God? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the whole the whole point is that these are, enlightenment is something, enlightenment would be what Christians or Muslims would call the beatific vision, which is to lay, finally lay your eyes on the face of God, mm. which is actual truth. If you're a Buddhist, it means because you finally understand. And you're sitting under the Bodhi tree and you, you, finally have this, you finally get it, is what it comes to. You know, we, in the monotheistic traditions, we don't believe you get it on this side of death. Buddhists think that you actually can achieve it, but be that as it may. I mean, I don't know. I have my hypothesis, <laughs> but I am, I do know that we're all move. We all need to move toward it. We all need to do the work toward it and getting, getting the AI is not going to do it any more than Facebook. Interesting is that do it. you're linking. Cause I don't think of AI as God, but I hear a lot of people talk about that, that it will end up being godlike. So it's interesting if they really are looking for that in ai i think what i'm trying to fill the whole godlike hole with it yeah so i I will grant you that for anybody doing that that would be a tremendous mistake and i'll give you my thesis on what i think all this is in a second but ai i think for me anyway it is it is to finally get answers to the complex which may be your entire definition my, of God. That's an, that's an exercise in futility. That's interesting. I yeah. don't know that I would agree with that. So I feel like, and look, I don't have, uh, the data that I have to back up the following is, is merely physics. Right. As we grow, huh? Well, <laughs> we don't understand physics. Simple that, physics. That's, yeah. <laughs> the, the reason I bring that up is because as we strip layers off that onion, it unlocks things that we couldn't do before. Right. And all of us have grown up in a world where Einsteinian, Einsteinian, whichever way you would say uh-huh. that, physics already exist. Yeah. And not realizing that before that it was Newtonian physics. Right. And that the shift between the two unlocked right. the modern world. Right. And you know, we think of him as just sort of this crazy haired guy. And we forget that so many of the things that we rely on in the modern world required us to understand that breakthrough, but it isn't the universal principle yet. We haven't gotten there. We haven't got Higgs boson, which will, which will show, which will render Einsteinian physics obsolete in all kinds of ways. Fingers crossed. So as we begin to unlock these things and truly understand them, it, it really does open up avenues of um, technology. Now, one has to be careful not to view technology as a god, but if we can use AI to either augment our own intelligence or for it to itself be intelligent. Now, I'm wildly conflicted about uh-huh. AI. Let me be abundantly of course, clear. We all I'm, are. Yes, yeah, deploying it as fast as I can, uh-huh, and at the same time, I'm terrified. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, but I want those answers have real world implications. That's yeah. the moral of my story. Yeah, 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 for sure. Absolutely, they do. But the point is that they, that AI and all of these particular tools, they solve a different species of problem. Yeah, they are not going to answer the God. They're not hole. going to because they can't. And the whole idea is that there's always this concept that we could understand everything if we had sufficient computational horsepower. Mm-hmm. But that's not right. Because you can't solve comp- complex problems 
which are mathematically different than complicated problems. Yes. Give me an example of, so for people that don't know, yeah. you did applied mathematics for a while. So yeah. this is not me asking some random yeah. guy off the street. Yeah. Give me an example of- A um, complex and a complicated problem. Yes, because yeah. in math, the only thing I can think of because I am wildly ignorant, I would like right. to be abundantly clear. Right. But from my just not knowing math at all perspective, right. the only category of thing in math that I know as being complex would be something like the uh, pi. Right. So pi is, uh, if Yosha Bach is correct, better understood as a function rather right. than a number because right. you can never know the final right. digit of pi. It's a relationship. Interesting. Yeah, it's a relationship. But but f so I'll give you an example. Is, of two. is that complex? Yeah, well, it's a good question whether or not it's complex or not. I think about it in a slightly different way. So I'll give you an example that might um, that might make it clearer. So a complicated problem is one that has, you know, seventy five equations and seventy five unknowns. It's a highly dimensional mathematical problem that it would just take tons of computational horsepower to to, to figure out. But there is a solution. Mm. Designing a jet engine. Um, is an incredibly complicated problem. Making a toaster is a complicated problem. You know, if you try to do one out in your garage with, you know, stuff that's sitting around your house, you'll probably burn your house down if you try to make toast with it. It's a very complicated thing to do. But once you do it, you can do it over and over and over again with almost complete accuracy. Mm -hmm. That's a, These are complex, complicated problems. A complex problem is a football game. A football game is a complicated problem where I don't care how good your computer is, you're not going to be able to tell me the outcome. Because that it's has complex. It's complex. Right. It's a, it's, I think I misspoke. You it's, said complicated once but, and complex yeah, ones, but yeah, complex. Yeah. It's a complex problem. A complex problem is incredibly simple to understand the outcome. You know, the Patriots score higher than the Broncos. That's, uh, you know, the natural order of things. <laughs> that they, That is just one team has a higher score than the other and wins. Very simple. Incredibly simple. Um, but it's unbelievably the permutations are so vast that you can't you can't simulate it. You and can't, you don't think that's knowable with enough computation. It's not knowable with enough computation, but actually, and, and even if that one turns out to be that turns out to be not a complex problem, but a complicated problem. There are complex problems like the problem of love. The problem of love is very simple. And yet it's not something that you can simulate in any real way. And some people will say, well, you have your AI girlfriend. That's a, that's a, you've, you've cracked the code of love. No, you haven't. There's no, there's nobody watching us right now. It's like, yeah, AI girlfriend, just as good. No, no. AI yes. girlfriend, a substitute. Cause I can't get the real thing mm. is what it would come down to. That's the difference between pornography and, 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 and sex with your wife. 